Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. We're a church family in North Carolina with a vision for people to experience the grace of Jesus, be filled with the Father's love, and to release the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's this week's message from Chapel Hill. I think in the church, we've been so loved on, which is awesome and necessary, but sometimes we forget how love famished that the world is. So uh, I heard this story recently. I was reading it, actually, and from YWAM Kona, where my son Ben is, who, by the way, found out he's going to South Africa in December on his, on his outreach phase. So we're excited for him. If you're visiting, he's at a mission school called Youth with a Mission in Kona, Hawaii right now. I know suffering from the Lord, you know, it's terrible. He's like camping on a beach right now, I, whatever that is. But no, it is an awesome discipleship training school, and uh, he'll be going for uh, two months to the nation of South Africa. All, they're going to tour all over that nation just sharing the gospel. But they had a guest speaker there, a woman named Sama Habib. Has anybody ever heard of her? And so he, he called us, he calls us every day. Bless you, Ben. Thank you for calling your mom and dad. And he was telling us this story, and I was like, I got to read this for myself. So I started reading about, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but Sama's story, I started reading about it. Like, this is just, again, it's a confirmation of what I was feeling in my heart, and it's just such an incredible thing. But the long, let's we'll just share a few details or a few highlights from what I, I've been reading is, so she grew up, she won't share what country, but somewhere in the Middle East, I know it's got seasons and it gets cold there. And I don't know exactly where, but she grew up in this uh, Muslim family, a large family of 10 children, and she was um, greatly adored her father and her mother. They were well-educated people who just loved their kids and um, so they would gather every evening for, you know, chicken kebab dinners and just had a, she had great memories of her childhood. Um, and as she was taught, she would dil- diligently pray to Allah every day. And, you know, but she said that um, over time, the thing that she noticed is Allah never talked back. And so it always kind of kind of discouraged her a little bit, but she loved her daddy and her mom, and she would be diligent and do what she was taught and all these things, and, and um, so, but when she was 10 years old, war came, a civil war came to her nation, and their life obviously was greatly disrupted, and uh, terrible things were happening, tragedy, killing, rape, murder, all over, all around them, um, she has so many stories that she told about these very close things that happened, and um, and including a severe famine. So, and it was so cold, and they had such little fuel for fire to keep warm that they actually chopped up all the furniture in their household as their last ditch effort. So, I just imagine like an entire uh, large apartment without any furniture because it had been chopped up for firewood to try to stay alive. And then the government was baking bread, and so there would be these bread lines that they would go to. And so when her and her sister, um, multiple times they went to these bread lines, and they'd run out, and there would be a riot, and people would die, would start, you know, trampling one another. And then the police would open fire, and people would be shot and killed. It was just unimaginable circumstance. Well, one day she goes to this one bread line, and um, which, by the way, growing up, she had had some Orthodox Christian neighbors, 
and um, that sort of thing. So she had, I think, one time at like a Christmas thing, she went to an Orthodox church, and she didn't know what that is. You know, the cross kind of scared her. Like, I, just, I don't know. that. But so she had a vague familiarity with it. But the thing that kept coming back to her was, I pray all these times a day to Allah, but I never, it's never a conversation. And I've never had a prayer answered. And so she goes to this bread line to try to feed the family or help feed the family. And um, it turns bad. She feels a boot hit her in the side of the head. She goes down on the ground and she feels the life leaving her body. And with almost her last breath, she says, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you're real, help me. And she said like a supernatural thing happened where she was just, I don't know, supernaturally just pulled out of that, that riot, that mob, that suffocation, whatever was going on with her. And she was completely, you know, she got home with bread. And so that began a journey for her because this experience said, wait a second, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So then... Um, the war is still going on, I think two years now. So she's like, uh, 12 or 13 maybe. And there's an announcement by flyers around the area that, um, some people are coming to show the Jesus film in their neighborhood. I bet it's why whammers. They love the Jesus film. I bet it was, I I don't know. I would have to ask her, but (laughs) youth with a mission. So whoever they were. Let me get this straight, Lord. So somebody had the courage to go into a war zone with the Jesus film. Somebody did. The love of Christ compels us. They took this movie, and she said we were so excited because, of course, in the war they couldn't go to the theater and, like, watch movies. So they're getting to go to this is outside. She said there was about 200 people or so that had the courage to gather and watch this film, and she said, as I watched the story of Jesus, and it came to where they hung him on the cross, she said, the only thing I could do was weep. And she said, I just knew right then something was different. We believed in Jesus as a prophet, as Muslims, but I didn't. Why can he? She would go home and ask her daddy this question. Why does this prophet raise the dead, open blind eyes, and cure leprosy? Like, Muhammad never did any of those things. You know, so they would have these. And I could also feel in the story like a conversation between a daddy and a daughter. You know, I didn't feel like a judgment from her because she adored, adored her family, her, her father, as anyone would. And, um, and then she, had, was af- she was like an athlete growing up, too, as a kid. And um, she had done some different types of martial arts and stuff. And then one day her friend came to her with a flyer they had found on the lamppost or whatever um, that there were free Taekwondo classes being offered in the elementary. She couldn't go to school this time, but the gym where she did go to school about a five-minute walk away, they were going to have free Taekwondo um, classes there. And she was like, her friend was like, we should go to that. She goes, free? I don't have any money. I can't pay for it, but it's free. And she's like, no, it's probably just the first class is free. 
you've been there. And then once you get into the first, they get you hooked, and then you got to pay for it because she had done some other um, classes that her brother had paid for, but he could no longer afford to do it. So she went, and she found out, actually, no, it's entirely free because the man who was leading the classes, he said, okay, it's going to be about a two-hour class, but plan three hours because we're going to start with praise and worship and a study of the Bible. So this other man, missionary, goes to a war zone. Okay, again, as I'm reading this, I'm just like, what? Who does this? He goes to a war zone with a practical application of something to reach people with the gospel. And that was a self-defense class in a South Korean self-defense technique. And in that, he shared all the gospel with every student. And Sama was born again in that place. And then over the next two or three years, um, I might have this slightly wrong, but I think five of her family members also came to know Jesus. Now remember, that is a very dangerous thing in the culture in which she lived. And there were other missionaries who had a church that never stopped meeting. It was always meeting during that time. And some very difficult things happened to this church. You'll have to read the book to find out the rest. I'm just going to leave you on a cliffhanger. She does end up going and meeting, standing before the Lord in heaven. But um, comes, she doesn't die. She just has this. Anyway, it's an incredible story, but... In this story of Sama Habib, um, that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, I'm not... uh, I'm not advocating that we should all quit our jobs tomorrow and move to a war zone. I'm super proud of Abby and Samuel and what they're doing. That's the call of God on their life. But I also do look in the mirror and say, okay, Lord, am I living for myself or am I living because the love of Christ compels me? Who in this room has ever been wrecked by the love of God? Did you know that in Islam, of all the characteristics of Allah, there is absolutely no characteristic of love? Did you know that? She told me that. This is not my words. She writes about this in her story. That is one thing. The second thing is there is no recollection or characteristic as a father. There's no father. There's no love. Do you think that might be a demonic attack? The Father's love has been the one key thing that has continually wrecked us for our entire Christian lives. But besides a Muslim in the Middle East, what about those neighbors all around us? What about those who have been trapped in a lifetime of violent abuse? That has been absolutely breaking my heart. Recently, I've come across that. What about those who have just 
been abused in all kinds of ways that they can hardly figure out how to live tomorrow. We know that there's healing available and that Daddy God is there. Daddy God, the Father's love, is the most powerful force in the universe. To pick that young lady up or that young man and say, Daddy loves you. The Father loves you. I feel like I take that statement even so much for granted that I don't even realize, like, you got to understand what Paul is writing here in the, to the Corinthians. Do you know about the Corinthian, like, culture? Not good. <laughs> they, they worshiped, uh, it was goddess worship. That these idols to these goddesses, um, the culture included, like, temple prostitution, um, all sorts of gender confusion and probably just take a snapshot of a lot of the perversion and immorality in our own culture and maybe multiply that a little bit like that's the setting of this church that Paul's trying to deal with and you can feel from the first letter in first Corinthians that it's probably kind of baby Christians needing discipleship (laughs) Like, he makes statements like it's heard that one man has his stepmother. Like, they're having relations and stuff. Like, that's not cool. You know? I mean, when you read that, you're like, whoa, that never happened in my church. Like, what? What in the world? Sometimes, see, we read the Bible, and we think it's this glossy, like, oh, wouldn't it be great to be in the first century church? I don't know, man. I'm reading stuff like that. Like, my church is pretty squeaky clean compared to that. I mean, I'm just trying to give you a, a feel like this is what Paul is dealing with and what he's trying to minister to. And the Holy Spirit is writing these letters. And um, so in the second part, in the second letter, he's apparently addressing some questions that he's received. Unfortunately, we don't have those questions. We don't know what they were or what their comments were to, to the apostle Paul. But I just... I want to read these 10 verses in chapter 5, but before I do that, I want to kind of help you catch up to speed on where he's at in his dialogue. Is that okay? So before we get to chapter 5, let me just give you a few snapshots, okay? First of all, in chapter 1, in verse, this is 2 Corinthians, if you're following along in your Bible or on your device or whatever. I think we have this up there. 2 Corinthians 1.8. Do we have that one? Okay, there it is. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. That's pretty bad, right? Um, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Dang. Oh, I might die. Oh, but God raises the dead. (sighs) He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So we can tell here that it's not going so well on this missionary journey. It's been tough. They almost died. In other words, right? We got that. Go to chapter 2, verse 4. He says, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you 
And then he starts talking about this brother in the church that had done some bad stuff, and they were greatly offended with him. And then they had informed him that they were forgiving this man. And he's like, well, if you forgive him, then I forgive him. And I just saw the power of forgiveness in there. So let me put this little forgiveness plug in there. Who do you need to forgive today? I forgave somebody on the way to church this morning. Okay. <laughs> like Something that happened yesterday that I felt this thing in my heart. Like, oh, that's, I don't feel too good. All right, I'll just forgive him right now. I'm just going to make that choice to forgive him. Because I think if you don't... Probably if you don't go through a week and you don't have anybody that you need to forgive, even slightly, you're probably not breathing. But we also know that spiritually for unforgiveness is one of the biggest blocks to the flow of the kingdom of heaven in our lives. And I can't afford to have it. I mean, it's going to clog up my ears spiritually. It's going to blind my eyes spiritually. I have no room for unforgiveness. And this is what was so powerful in that church, and I think why the Holy Spirit was able to flow in Corinth, the city-state of the Greeks, is because the Holy Spirit had given them this lesson. Okay, yeah, that guy did some bad stuff. I don't know exactly what it was, but we're going to forgive him. So Paul forgave him too. Um, Go on down to verse 14 in chapter 2. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Woo, you got a scent, and it's not body odor. Praise God. (laughs) That's silly. There's an aroma. I've been in a few instances where there was a supernatural smell in the room. Has anybody else experienced that? Yeah? Okay, good. I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one. There is a supernatural aroma, and my theory, and I think the evidence would show this, is that when that happens, it doesn't always happen, but when it does, the heavenly aroma has some sweetness to it, or a a flower, or it's heaven. That's what's in heaven. Now, I also recently read about someone who had a demonic encounter and a stench. I think it was akin to like a rotten egg smell. And it, you know, this demonic thing. Isn't that interesting? I, I'm, I sort of am fascinated by stuff like that. Because I realize there are spiritual, like our five natural senses, there are spiritual senses like that. And uh, sometimes I'm just not paying attention. I just don't realize this what's happening. And that's okay. I mean, it's all right. But I want to grow in that. Like, okay, Lord. And so Paul's saying, like, you literally bring... And maybe it's just a spiritual analogy he's saying, but the aroma of Christ, the aroma of knowing Jesus, you bring that in in your surroundings. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. All right, chapter 3. This is, I preached whole series on this, so I'm not going to get carried away. But it's in chapter 3, he shifts into talking about the greater glory. Let me just give you a snapshot. What is the greater glory? I believe the glory represents the manifest presence of God. So you know how in the Old Testament, the, man, the, fit, the, the presence of God was literally in the tabernacle, right? Or in the tent of meeting. You know, Moses would go in there. Joshua would hang out. And in some instances, Moses would go in and he was physically glowing in such a way. 
which, by the way, is simply the light of Jesus. When you get to heaven, you're going to see it. It's a light so bright as the sun, but it doesn't hurt your eyes. And the light is literally waves of love. That's what it is. So Moses would go in and he would experience this. And apparently he would come out of that tent and was literally so bright on him physically that what did he have to do? He had to cover it up with a cloth because people could not look at him. Now, who thinks that would be awesome? Like, what if that happened to Chiamaka? She went into her prayer room. She came out, and she was so glorious, glowing, that literally Bailey and those around her were like, oh, I can't look. Now, that is a pretty amazing phenomenon, which, by the way, I'm sure it's happened throughout history, but about 100 years ago at Azusa Street, that same type of phenomenon began to happen among other things. But here's what Paul writes about it. Um, this is 2 Corinthians 3, 7, if you're taking notes. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses, that's what I was just ret- telling you about, because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? On down to verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now you might say, well, this is a spiritual allegory or an illustration. That is true. He's talking about spiritually that when we have a recognition through the love of God, of Jesus, for the first time, it's like the veil is taken away. That's a spiritual analogy. I get that. But I'm telling you, there is also a meeting between the physical reality and the spiritual reality. I believe that in the last days, perhaps we're in that generation, there will be such a glow on the church that people can't help but take notice. Now, have you ever seen this in just a little bit? One time, shortly after I was saved, I was like 19 or 20 years old. I I was going through some really difficult stuff. Um, And so I had been in a very tough season emotionally, but... And, and I was in one of those lonely seasons. Has anybody ever been there where, like, you're sitting in your apartment? And you're like, all right, who am I hanging out with today? Oh, yeah, it's just me. Like, there's nothing to do. I mean, I kind of had friends, but it just didn't feel available. And so I would exalt myself as this really spiritual person. But it was mainly, to be honest, because I didn't know what else to do. And I felt depressed and desperate. I was like, I think I'm just going to worship. I'm just going to like dive in. And I started to experience like this thick presence just in my apartment, just me and Jesus. And I don't know how to explain why or how this happens. But um, the next day I went to church and I'm sitting in the church that I was at and like towards the back. And I'm just really enjoying worship. And I'm just and then after church, this lady taps me on the shoulder and she goes, hey, I don't know this. I didn't know her. 
She's like, I just got to let you know. The most wild thing happened. I'm watching you as you're worshiping, and there's just like this glow coming off of you. I'm like, really? (laughs) I wonder what that's for. I don't mean to get weird about this because it's really not the point. But I'm just saying, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is literally a place where earth wants to meet heaven. And I don't think it's the main point because the main point is always Jesus. But all I can say is these manifestations of heaven on earth in our reality matter. Because they point to Jesus. They are the glow of his face in heaven. All right, are you guys okay? This is not really my main point. But so we with unveiled faces, the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Uh, I will say this about William Seymour. Um, He was an African-American gentleman in L.A., In 1906, he had lost sight in one of his eyes. So I always refer to him as the one-eyed black man (laughs) who wouldn't let segregation keep him down from receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he had gone from Texas to L.A., began to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Incredible supernatural things happened, including like a physical mist would fill their room, like fill their building like a glory cloud, again, like in Exodus, unexplainably, but it happened. This glory cloud fills, and I mean, literally this, every miracle you can think of happened in this church for about three years, including this man who had his arm severed in a railroad accident nearby. Remember, this is early 1900s, so the railroads were a big deal. And they, okay, so I have a book called They Told Me Their Stories, and it was children and teenagers who were there, and this man recorded their eyewitness testimony. They saw this guy's arm grow out in this glory cloud that was happening at Azusa Street. Um, I think something like 14 million people around the world got on boats because there were no planes. Got on, well, at least commercially. Got on boats and trains and wagon trains, I don't know, and came to this, what used to be a horse stable in L.A. at the time, and visited this church, and it's where... A revelation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit went global. We would call it viral, but they didn't have that back then. It went global. All right, so in, in uh, 1909, I believe it was, or 1910, it began to wane a little bit. And uh, William Seymour prophesied this. He said, in about 100 years, so we're a little bit 100 years past that, but he said, in about 100 years, the glory of the Lord is going to show up Similar to what is done here, except for two differences. It's going to be stronger, and it's going to be more widespread. Instead of being in one church in L.A., there's going to be places globally where the glory of God is going to... And Hosea said that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters covered the sea in the times of Noah. I believe, guys, we could be living... Only God knows. That's why I say could. We could be living in a time where we see the glory of God, the manifest presence of God pour out. And I think one of the, the biblically pinnacle ways of the radiant glory of God, like on Moses, may it come upon Chiamaka and Bailey and David and all of us, this side of the room, that side of the room. 
Because it's his goodness. Like, well, why get so, I'm only concerned with that because it's him. The glory is him. They're inseparable. It's like saying that the presence of your spouse is different from your spouse. No, it's the same thing. It's the very glory and presence of God. It's everything. All right, in chapter 4, oops, I just clicked something. Okay. In chapter 4, he says in verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Don't give up. Times get tough. Don't throw in the towel. In verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Amen? We're hard-pressed, yeah, on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Wow, what does that mean? We always carry the death of Jesus? Woo, let the Lord show you. Let him put, take, a pic, take a look in the mirror. Lord, how do I carry the death of Jesus so that the glory of the resurrected Christ is always visible in my life? 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. Everybody knows this verse, right? This verse is a lot of sermons right here. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal we love the glory we love the goodness how do we get it light and momentary troubles we fix our eyes not on what is seen we're wasting away yet but we're being renewed it's a wrong side out upside down gospel we die and then we live we carry death in order that the resurrection might arise in our hearts Take your troubles and let them work for you. Because whatever is not going right in my life is an opportunity for the glory of God to arise. All the way from, you know, a momentary like your car breaks down to the loss of a loved one, a devastating death or a tragedy. This is an opportunity for the light of the gospel to arise in our hearts. Let me get to the main thing in chapter 5. Finally made it there. Um, First of all, verse 7, don't forget this one. For we live by faith and not by what? We live by faith and not by sight. Do you? (laughs) That's a question mark for me. Matthew, do you live by faith or do you live by sight? Well, Lord, if I'm going to be honest, which day are we talking about? (laughs) Yeah, I know. And that's humanity. Uh, That is not a condemnation or a shame thing at all. Absolutely not. But it's an encouragement. No, I don't live by what I see in the natural. I live what I see. I live by what I see in the supernatural, in the kingdom realm. That's where we're called to be. And so this is the context in verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. 
What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, that's an interesting verse right there. Some people say they're out of their mind. I'm not trying to act crazy or talk weird or say these, these things just to sound controversial or whatever. But if I do, hey, we're in good company. Because even people would say that about the church and Paul, like, they're tripping. Like, <laughs> they're out of their mind. Like, what is going on? No, it's just that some people... Believers, they see things that others don't. And that sin is not just sin. It's a deep belief and a conviction in our hearts that there is something greater than just this natural world. There's something bigger than my bank account. There's a love that's deeper than the love that I have for my daughters or my sons. There is a force in this universe that is greater than any nuclear weapon. There is nothing that any army or militia or terrorist organization that they can do to stop the plans and purposes of my father. There's nothing I can do to make him love me less or to make him love me more. He just loves me and you because he does, because that's what a father is like. This is the gospel. This is what we see, right, church? This is what we believe. This is what's important. We're not out of our minds. This isn't just wishful thinking. Verse 14, what we started with. Why? Because Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Let that Think about that for a minute. So from now on, we don't regard anybody according to the world's perspective. In Samuel, the Bible says that God, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, right? I think it's kind of akin to that. We're not looking at people according to their social status, their socioeconomic achievement, their ethnicity, their country of origin, you know, wherever they grew up. I think Paul's saying, we don't look at people like that. Though, and this is a very interesting statement to me, he said, we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. I think what he's referring to, and I could be wrong, but I think what he's referring to by saying we, I think he's talking about the Jewish people. Paul, before, you know, when he was Saul, before he became a believer in Christ, what was he doing? Well, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, he knew the Torah. He had it memorized, the first five books of the Old Testament. He was uh, an expert scholar. He studied under Gamaliel, this guy. It's not important, the names, but basically he was a excelled PhD in the Jewish understanding of the Torah. And as a result of that, before 
he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, he was persecuting Christians. He was dragging women and children and men and putting them in prison and having them executed and giving approval to that. And so I think what he's saying is we, I, we, us Jewish experts, we once regarded this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He can't be who he's claiming to be, all these sorts of things. But he said, but we don't do that any longer. Because like in Acts chapter 9, when he was blinded by that light, and that man appeared to him in a light, by the way, which physically did blind him momentarily, or temporarily, I should say. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Or in this translation, the new creation has come. Paul, this is very personal to him. He was like, I once regarded him according to the natural. He can't be the promised Messiah. But now I realize I'm a new creation. He is. This is true. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Guys, I think this is really key. You have the ministry of reconciliation. Do you, you have the ministry of reconciliation. Well, I don't really know what my ministry is. I don't, I don't really know what I'm called to. What am I gifted at? I know, I know, I know. Let me tell you, you have the ministry of reconciliation. Great, Matthew, what is that? Don't worry, Paul's going to tell you. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's good news, isn't it? I was a, I've been a big sinner in life. That's really good news to me. I don't know about you, that God was reconciled through Christ's death and resurrection and that he's not counting my sins against me. Wow. And he's committed to us that message. It's pretty simple, isn't it? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Making his appeal, look at the original language, it's like shouting it from the rooftops. Oh my gosh! It's like declaring it at the top of your voice. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying he's trying to bring an emphasis here by this word in the English is we implore you. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to your father. Be reconciled to God. It's the answer for all the pain. It's the answer for all the difficulty. Have you ever wondered as you watch some news clips of things going on in Israel why do human beings have to do such things to one another? Why? Like, what is the purpose, really? What is the point? Why do we as humans allow such evil to overtake our hearts to go and do unspeakable things to each other? And we've done that since we've been in existence, since Cain and Abel. Well, I mean, we know why. We know we have an adversary. We know the right answer to that question, but here's the solution. Be reconciled to your father. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Did you know that you're the, in another translation that says you're the righteousness of God in Christ? So you know what that means? You don't need to do something to make yourself more righteous. That might sound controversial, but it's really not. It's the Bible. That sacrifice of that blood by Christ on the cross, that's what makes you righteous, not the good things now that you do. I'm not saying you shouldn't do good things. Because when you love God and you've received that righteousness, what follows is you do good things. Right? But it's not the good things that make you righteous. That has already been done. That's why there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. If you're trying to do that, stop it. Quit. It's like if Lydia came in here and was like, Dad, if I do do this, will you love me more? What a stupid question. No, I wouldn't say that to her. It's not a stupid question. It's like an, a ridiculous thought. Because I'm going to love her for who she is, not for what she can do. Right? So why would we think about our relationship with our father like that? That is not the program. And when I got that revelation years ago now, you know what it actually did? Some naysayers call that something like greasy grace. They're like, oh, well, that's just a license to do whatever you want to do. It's like a license to sin. Nah. It's actually the most motivating force in my Christian life. When I receive that kind of love, not because I deserve it, when I, he says to me, hey, I've made you righteous and I'm proud of you, despite what you do or you don't do, you know what it does? It makes me want to, like, let's go. It makes me want to. It is a compulsion, not in a bad will. It is that verse 14. The love of Christ compels me and compels me. Are you guys all right? What does it look like? Well, you got to receive it. This is a conclusion. I'm about to close, y'all. Don't worry. And in, in, uh, as I was listening in to that Emma Stark teaching from Wednesday night, she talks about this principle in a different way, but I'm going to apply this here. You have to receive love in your feelings and your emotions from your father, not just in your mind. I've discovered that a lot of us, we walk around... God loves you. I, God loves me. Yeah, I know. God loves me. And, and like they mentally, we mentally receive like it's almost like this principle or something like God loves me. And then we study a little bit more We're like, well, he has to because that's who he is. God is love. It's almost like he tolerates me, but I know he has to love me. So therefore, if he doesn't have a choice to love me, then I know he loves me. And it's sort of like this intellectual understanding of the love of God. But what you got to have if you're going to have this compelling love is you need it to soak you, body, soul, and spirit. You need to what I call be baptized in the love of God. You need to, does anybody drink coffee in here? Okay, we got a few coffee drinkers. You know when you get up on that crisp fall day, especially if you're camping or something and your body's kind of cold, your body temperature's down a little bit, and man, you brewed that perfect cup, Darren. And that first sip is the best. It's like that warm, and maybe it's hot tea for the healthier folks in there. No, actually, you know coffee's healthy. Okay, don't, just stop. You, it's like it's, it's just this soothing thing, and you feel it, and it almost puts a smile on your face. Or it does put a smile on your face. And the caffeine kind of boosts you up a little bit. 
it's a terrible analogy because it lacks so much, but it's the best thought that I have is the love of God. Let it just so immerse you that you just don't know what else to do with yourself. Heidi Baker, does anybody know who she is? She's probably one of the greatest heroes of the faith in the modern era. She wrote a book I read now about 10 years ago. It was called Compelled by Love. And if you ever see Heidi speak, like she'll just get down on her knees and she'll cry and she'll laugh and she'll share just about the love sickness of God in her life. And it's a little different sometimes. But the fruit of it is irrefutable. The fruit is like 8,000 churches in 10 years in one of the poorest nations on earth, the Mozambique, Africa. It's like living in a war zone and just being so focused on the, the heavenly. I mean, she has the most amazing stories. Like, they'll walk into villages, bring me all your deaf. They bring every deaf person. All of them get healed. Like, just unreal stuff that we would be like, whoa. But her stories, like, what she teaches is very similar to this right here. It's like, listen, the love of God is the most motivating and powerful force in the universe. You can't ever get enough of it. You can't ever have too much of it. Just completely be undone by the love of God. That's my message this morning. Somebody needed to hear it. Because I know just by the fact that Abby's coming, the Lord confirmed it. And then Ben sent me that story. And maybe you're just like, I've never really known that. I mean, I knew that, like, but I never felt it. And I know feelings aren't everything. We do not, we're not ruled by our feelings. But they are something. Because God created them. And I want to pray that this week, that you would feel the love of Jesus like you've never felt it before. That if you were the last person on earth, he would have gone and willingly laid his life down. Let all the skin be torn off his body and executed and tortured to the nth degree. That you would know the love of God. Like me, has it ever, has it been a long time for some of you? Where like, man, I have experienced that, but I'm feeling kind of love starved recently. Anybody feel that way? Feel a few, I see a few head now. That's all right. I mean, literally, because why would the Father ever condemn you for that? He's not condemning you. And now let the devil try to shame you. Oh, Matthew, shame on you. You're not feeling God's love right now. That sounds, that's stupid. No, he's a daddy. We're his kids. He loves to love on us. Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. To get more information, check out riverlifefellowship.com.